Hello, and welcome to Corporate Activist. I'm Siri Kalsa, and I'm delighted to have you join me today for another great conversation about how businesses can engage in social and political issues to lead positive change in the world. As we begin 2024, it's clear the world is facing many serious challenges, particularly on the geopolitical front. Many of these topics we touched on in the last episode with Denmark's former foreign minister, Jeppe Kofod. But I want to dive deeper into how corporations are affected by geopolitics, and particularly by wars and conflicts. As we record this, we are seeing an escalation of tensions in the Middle East that may very well continue to rise, and in doing so, have a big impact on the global economy in a myriad of ways. To better understand how corporations are impacted, and also the role and responsibility of corporations in areas of conflict, as well as how to operate in foreign areas where corporations are new to the people, culture, and society, I've invited Dr. Peter Stanbury to join the podcast today. Peter is a political economist, anthropologist, evaluator, and management consultant with nearly three decades' experience working in some of the world's most challenging locations. The focus of his work is on the politics of economic development, and in particular, the challenges associated with agricultural supply chains. He works with companies, international agencies, governments, and civil society to help them find solutions to the challenges they face in developing countries. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Peter. Hello, Siri. Very nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Peter, I'm really happy to have you join the podcast today. We're dealing with some big issues, and I feel like you've got a lot of insight into the kind of things that are going on in the world and how businesses are interacting with geopolitics and wars and conflict. And so I really want to dive into this, but I want to start by just getting to know you a little better. Maybe you can tell us about your background, your education, and what got you interested in this line of work. Where I was born and brought up is probably about as far from what I've ended up doing professionally as is possible to to sort of imagine. You know, born in a very, very pleasant middle class family in uh, suburban England. Probably the most sort of momentous thing discussed was, you know, latest gossip about, you know, who was dating whom at school and all those sorts of things. Probably what the the key change in that was when I went up to university and realising that there was a much bigger world out there, that, that abroad didn't just mean, you know, going across the channel to you know, to France, that there was actually rather more world out there and more opportunity. So, yeah, I did history as an undergraduate. But the whole thing about corporate activism, it's one of those terms that, I mean, it's one you've coined. But I think if by that you mean corporates being involved in more than just providing the goods and services that we see, that they have a bigger footprint on the world as, uh, uh, at large. I think that first became clear to me when I was working um, in Central Europe during the 90s. I was working initially for NATO and then latterly for the Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum. And what we found there is with NATO, what we were doing was we we ran something called the Democracy Programme, which was trying to set up good democratic practice in the countries of the former Warsaw Pact, which in itself was complicated enough because, you know, for 50 odd years they'd been under the Soviet regime. And so it was a question of, you know, how do you create parliamentary structures? How do you work out how a political party operates? How do local government and national government fit together? All of those sorts of questions. But one of the things that kept on coming up was what's the relationship between all of those, as it were, hard political questions and the private sector? Uh, you know, and sometimes that was quite close. You know, I remember talking to a mayor of Prague once and he said, well, you know, my sister runs a property company. Can you help her understand what, how she should be operating? But then, of course, there is that question about, you know, what is the relationship between the state, 
for want of a better term, and the private sector. So that, you know, that became clear. And then I mentioned working for the Business Leaders Forum, uh, you know, and that was a, a, an initiative that the Prince of Wales had set up, I think, in the in the sort of late 90s, really to say that when it comes to issue, what I suppose one might term developmental issues, the corporate sector has a role to play. But but how does that look? How do you actually make that work in practice? How do you develop relationships between the private sector on one hand, perhaps NGOs or um, the third sector on the other hand, and the state sector? So I think those are the things that really got me into that area and realising just how complicated it is. But equally, if you get it right, and you can, you can get into that complexity, how rewarding it can be. I know that the topic of your PhD thesis was the role of corporations in conflict. And based on today's headlines, it seems like a good place to start. <laughs> and as listeners may probably know, the Western allies have mounted an operation called Prosperity Guardian in response to Houthi attacks on international shipping vessels going through the Red Sea. It's clear that this operation is based on more then, you know, based as much on global trade as global security. This area is, you know, we've got 10 to 15 percent of world shipping going through the Red Sea. I saw a really interesting statistic about the war risk insurance, which is something that at the Red Sea about a year ago is at 0.2 percent value of the shipment and is now at 1 percent, which is obviously a significant change. And now, fold increase. <laughs> yes, and now that so many ships are having to reroute around Africa, you know that's adding more costs and time and huge complication. And so, essentially, much of what's happening, although you know, as you know, there's layers and layers to what's going on here. There's a significant economic reason for this military action. So, I'd love to just get your thought on how you looked at this during your thesis time and how you're seeing that being acted out today. I'll loop back to what's going on in the Red Sea in a moment. But yes, my doctorate was to give it its full title, The Role of Governments of Multinational Corporations in Post-Conflict Reconstruction. And where that came from was I'd been working in the Balkans as political advisor to Diageo, the, the drinks business. And it became apparent that they saw themselves as having nothing at all to do with what was going on. And at that stage, the Kosovo conflict was kicking off. You had a lot of very serious unrest within Macedonia, what's now northern Macedonia. And Diageo as a corporate was saying, well, that's nothing to do with us. You know, as long as we can sell into our customers, that's our role. But it came to light that the KLA had paid for their guns in Johnny Walker whiskey. So they obviously had a role to play. But I went away and said, well, what literature is there to help me guide Diageo to, to do the best that they can? Because they were you know, very open to, to that as a, as, a, as, a, as a way forward. But there simply wasn't anything. Uh, there certainly wasn't any guidance. There were two or three things out of Harvard, but that was about it. So, yes, I did a doctorate. I looked at uh, Bosnia, Rwanda and Azerbaijan and really, really had to try and boil down what I've seen is some impact. But how can one look at that in a structured way? You know, and so I identified four areas of, I suppose, what you're trying to do in a reconstruction environment and how the corporation, how corporations in various instances have an impact on that. You know, obviously, the first one is the whole question of security. You know, and, and, and just as an example of that, one thing that companies can do in that space is, well, part of the whole process of going from hot conflict through to a more normalized environment is obviously you need to move to a situation where the things that have caused the divisions become apparently less important. So, for example, one thing that companies can do is rather than hire people all from the same ethnic group, 
you sort of say, well, how can we hire people from across the ethnic group? I mean, and, and you take someone like um, Bosnia as an example. You know, if the if you've got uh, you know uh, you know people from the three different ethnic group groups working together, you know, the conversation or the rules, the basis for discussion is around whose turn is it to make the coffee, or you know, who's got to write this report, rather than who won the Battle of Kosovo Polya in twelve, whatever it was. Second is the area of infrastructure, which is obviously something that companies put together for themselves. And again, take Bosnia as an example, putting in place some of the technology companies will put in place an infrastructure, you know, working with local institutions to create training environments. Well, again, why does that not get built into a wider sort of reconstruction process? I mean, the key one, obviously, that corporates help or the private sector helps with is, is economic growth. And looking at the and actually I'll refer to this again when I talk about Yemen in a minute. You know, one of the one of the clear issues in many conflict environments is that if you have a poor economy, then particularly young men who are obviously the ones that tend to do most of the fighting, they have no interest in the status quo. They have no self-interest in the status quo. You know, so why why wouldn't they go and fight for a warring group? Because they've got nothing to lose. So if you can create economic growth and so someone that otherwise might have gone to fight with a militia, you know, he's perhaps got a car, he's got a, a relationship, he's got somewhere he can live. So he starts to think a bit more about, and I'm using the word he very deliberately because it's predominantly young men. Um, you know, I see, I've seen this subsequently in, in places like Nigeria, that if one looks at the Boko Haram uh, insurgency, actually, if you look at that as a, a bigger phenomenon, one of the key issues there is, is, is a lack of economic growth in the north of Nigeria. So that's another thing. And then the, another key thing is governance. How do you actually demonstrate that governance, proper governance across the piece is, is what makes civilised countries civilised? You know, so and from the corporate perspective, that is right. We'll always make sure you go through the official structures of state, even if that can be a pain in the proverbial. You know, you're demonstrating that all those things, all those things are important. So how does that all sort of play into what's going on in, I mean, I suppose one could also say not just the Red Sea, but also what's going on in Gaza, Israel. I mean, a couple of obvious thoughts. You know, one of the things is how can companies stay involved? Uh, I mean, I did some work with the German development agency about two or three years ago in Yemen. And part of the problem that you faced there was because pretty much any international business had left. And so even local businesses, local SMEs were really, really struggling. There was nothing for them to do. And of course, then the situation gets worse. The poverty and all of those issues get worse. So, you know, how can you stay involved? And that's actually something I wrote a piece on last year or year before last in relation to divestment from Russia. Because if you remember when the Ukraine invasion happened nearly two years ago, there was a big drive that, you know, Western companies must go out of Russia. Now, on the one hand, yeah, get it. But actually, what about all the people in your supply chain in Russia who depend on you for a job? Dot, dot, dot. And it's not to say that divestment may not be the right thing to do, but it's a bit more complicated than just being able to, you know, virtue signal by saying we've divested from from wherever it is. But I would also say that military action to support economic ends, particularly something as key as the Red Sea, I think will always be the case. You've always seen, you know, all the way back to, you know, the Romans who who crushed Carthage because they resented its, you know, economic counterweight. You know, the, the economic interests have always been a driver for conflict. And in this case, it's quite difficult when it comes to, you know, what states decide to do in terms of military action onshore in Yemen. It's unclear what companies can do 
that's different. But I would say it's it's a question of being involved. I mean, say, take something like what's going on in Gaza and in Israel at the moment. Uh, I mean, I came across a, an agricultural business three or four years ago that was uh, it was an Israeli company. But most of the suppliers were from the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. So it provided an access to market for for the Palestinian communities. So it's looking out for opportunities like that when you can develop commercial links, which deliver what you need as a business, but also have these additional beneficial knock-ons in terms of conflict management. I can only imagine that a company, you know, you've got a few people, marketing people sitting around a table and they're like, you know, we, it's time to expand our markets. You know, we really see, for instance, Africa as an interesting place to go, young population, growth, you know, incredible growth. And they're sitting at a table in the UK or in Switzerland or somewhere, and they want to think, you know, and perhaps even a place that that is post-conflict like Rwanda, what kind of things should they be considering? And how essential is it that they actually understand the environment rather than just say, okay, well, I'm sure they'll really like our soda or our candy bars or whatever. That's absolutely right. And it can sometimes play out in, in one of two ways. Sometimes if you mention a country, almost everyone will throw their hands up in horror and say, no, we can't possibly work there because it's far too difficult, which may or may not be the case, but still needs exploring. Or people take the view that, well, it must be a bit like somewhere else and just a little bit different. Whereas, I, you know, rather than actually, no, it's, it's really an awful lot different. You know, we're not talking that, you know, the UK talking to Germany, well, Germany is you know, got a similar history and, you know, from, comes from a Judeo-Christian background. And actually, well, working in, I don't know, Turkey must be a bit the same. Well, no, it's, 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 there's a lot more differences. So I think it's the, the, what I would say is what has to underlie anything like that is proper analysis. That unless you take the time and effort to understand how the place that you're looking at actually works, and I would stress the word actually works, that you're really not designing action on a very solid basis. You have to understand how does a country operate, but particularly it's what are the deep-seated wiring diagrams. You know, we operate in societies, by we I mean, you know, Western Europe, North America, operate in a situation where people whose title is, you know, prime minister or member of parliament or things like that, we know that they have a position of responsibility and authority, and that's the route we go through. In many countries, I mean, let's take Af- you know, countries in Africa as, as an example, power vests through relationships. I mean, uh, uh, Nigeria is the classic example of this. Uh, the, you know, the tribal, the, uh, the old tribal structures is where real power lies. And so it doesn't really matter whether you might have the person on board who's the, the governor of the state or the, someone from the state house or the national house of representatives. The people that really count are the they, you know, they may be the same people, but it's it's those tribal elders who will really take decisions. And you really need to understand in any case what that wiring diagram is. And, and, and you really need to get to the root of the problem or you know what's actually going on here. Because it's, it's like anything else, it's a bit like again, medicine. Unless a doctor understands actually what you're suffering from, anything they give you as a solution is, is not going to be right. And, and the same thing's true with working in emerging economies, fragile economies, that unless you understand what's actually causing the challenge, you can't know what to do about it. 
Uh, I mean, I've talked about Boko Haram already. And, and, and when I was looking at that, you sort of realised that actually what was put down as Boko Haram was in fact a series of concentric circles of actually lots of different things that at the, at the core you did have very acad- um, Islamic academics who are implacably opposed to, to the West as an idea, but not in a violent sense. They just believe that what they're talking about is right. But beyond that, then you have other things involved, like historically the, the tension in Nigeria between the North and the South. So this is a way of from the North of playing this out. And then beyond that, you then just have people who use an excuse for basically banditry. Until you really understand those layers, you can't really know what you're doing. And so in exactly the same way, companies need to, if they're looking at these countries, to really do the hard yards on the analysis and then work out what they're going to do about it. However, what I also say is that sitting in an ivory tower, you can only go so far. A, you need to get out there and actually go and talk to people you wouldn't normally talk to. You know, so many people I've met, and, and I don't just mean corporate folk, the amount of, it's true also of senior government people as well. They go out, they, they sit in the nice posh hotels with hot and cold running bars and food, and they don't actually go and talk to, to real people on the ground. But then also there's a point at which you've done your analysis, just you're never going to get the perfect answer off first time. So come up with a working hypothesis, which allows you some sense of predictability of what's going on. And then if things turn out to be differently, well, learn from them. You actually have to, that you, there's, a, there's a point about being pragmatic. You can only think and analyse so far, then you just have to go out and do it. And then regroup, re, you know, what am I learning? That feed that practical action back into your learning processes. And do you see that some corporations maybe even going in with good intentions and maybe going in with, you know, they hire a local who who helps them make the right connections, that even in those cases, there's still a lot of opportunity for bad outcomes because of sort of knock-on effects or, you know, you get alignment with one tribe or you sort of think that you have the right license or something like that. And then you find out, well, actually, you know, we got really bad advice. I'm just wondering, like, how presumably you're someone that people call when things have gone wrong, right? When, yeah. they, when they've tried this, yeah. you know, they, they've gone in by themselves and thought, okay, we'll manage it. And then things go wrong and they give you a call. What kind of mistakes are you seeing people make? Well, it's one of them is the fixer problem, you know, mm-hmm. that they think, right, we know we don't understand this place. Um, and so we'll find someone who does. And generally speaking, you've got quite a lot of people who are quite good at cozying up to Western companies. But, you know, invariably, they will represent, even if they even if they are completely legitimate, completely kosher, they will still represent one dynamic in the society. And, you know, for a while, that might be fine. But unless you understand how the whole piece works, that sort of 360 degree then you're always going to be at risk. I mean, there was one company, um, I shan't, shan't say who it was or where it was, but they spent quite a lot of time getting cosy with an individual because a close relation of his was a senior government official. And they felt that that was going to be beneficial to their company in that country. But of course, then what happened is there was a revolution and suddenly that guy was not just not useful anymore. He was positively problematic. So I think there is always that need to, I mean, I certainly find if it with any country I work in, it's sort of, I mean, it's an old you know, expression, but stakeholder mapping. You've really got to make sure that you're looking at the full 360 of, of who's who, which groups are there, how does the you know, tribal and relationships work, what are the religious and other divides and you know, structures in society. So that's one thing that companies do wrong. 
the other thing I think is often what they'll do is they'll think they've got to the root of a problem because they don't really want to. They've sort of got to a point where oh, this is starting to look a bit sticky. So we'll stop here and then they solve the problem they think they've got rather than actually say, mm, are you actually have you got to the bottom of this yet? You know, an obvious one in that regard is a lot of the stuff you see international agricultural businesses and brand, you know, big food brands doing in relation to smallholder farmers, you know, large chunks of the stuff that we normally, you know, be that, you know, palm oil, coffee, cocoa tea, a large proportion of all those commodities are grown by smallholder farmers, you know, people that might farm in some cases less than a hectare. And there's been a huge amount of effort over the last 20 years going into supporting those smallholder farmers. Was no one's actually asking the question, well, to what extent in the long run is a smallholder farming model viable? You know, if you've got, in some places, you've got small, you know, got farms being divided into, you know, less than a hectare, but yet you've, that farm is expected to support, you know, perhaps 15 people. At what point does that just not become economically feasible? In which case you do need to start asking the questions about, well, what does the next phase look like? How do you create more broad-based rural economic dynamics? What do you then do with the people who aren't farming? Because, you know, if you've got farms that are bigger, they can be more efficient. Therefore, they can earn more money. They can. But then what do you do with the people who were on the land? So you need to create other uh, streams of activity. So it's, it's, it's realising that actually those knock on questions, those additionality questions need to be asked. That uh, if you stop too short, then actually you're not fundamentally solving the problem. And probably asked as soon as possible. I mean, some of it you may not know until you're actually on the ground doing things and you realize that, oh, well, we can't actually employ this group of women because they won't mix with this group over here or there isn't sufficient medical support for them or they, you know, they have to walk too far. But in theory, in this kind of assessment of going into a, let's say, a post-conflict area or a a zone that there would be some understanding. And, and I imagine, I know the US government does some assistance to help companies to establish themselves in post-conflict areas as a way to build economy. And But it's also, you know, one of the things that can be challenging also is when you don't have infrastructure, whether it's actual infrastructure of reliable electricity, but also infrastructure like banking and like a court system where you can make a contract that's actually going to, you know, hold a a seller to a buyer and and all of those kind of things. I think just doing business in, in these kind of places is very complicated. But I wonder when you're going into such a sensitive area and say you're objective is to sell more of your candy bars. What is your responsibility to actually look beyond your own profit and your own ability to build your company? Do you believe that there's an inherent responsibility that corporations have to have, I guess, in two ways? One, to be successful, to operate successfully in that environment. But secondly, just to be a good corporate citizen and to help address Perhaps they're better placed than some other agencies or, you know, institutions to deal with some of the issues that are happening on the ground. There's, there's quite a lot of meat in the question you've asked. And I think I'd refer back to what I was saying about the, the Diageo situation in the Balkans. The fact is, whether as a corporate, whether you like it or not, you end up being part of the fabric and therefore having an impact on that fabric in the country where you're operating. So if you're just saying, actually, we're, as you say, we're just here to sell more of you know, candy bars or, or fizzy drinks or whatever it happens to be, that 
it isn't as simple as that. And whether you whether you like that or not isn't really the point, because you are having those impacts. You are having that engagement with the society. I mean, lots of people you find in the corporate world will say, absolutely, you know, you know, we're here to, you know, my job is to build this facility or sell this or sell that. And they simply don't accept that there's that wider piece. But that isn't the case because responsibility is a big word. But the practical reality is they do have impacts in these places, even if they don't think they do or they don't want to. So therefore, I would think that there is a responsibility to understand that. Now, people like you and I might think that responsibility is because we think it's important that companies are good corporate citizens because we believe that there is a, a yeah a moral actually I'll use that word there is a moral imperative on on them to act in the proper way but I'd say even if you row back from that I think there's also a really strong commercial rationale for this because if you understand the place you're in and you've got an idea of how the impacts work then you can play that to your advantage uh, I mean, it can be, it can be, you know, even sort of silly stuff. When I was working with a company in Mozambique and it was an oil and gas investment and they found that they were you know, getting a lot of their vehicles were, you know, windscreens were being broken or tires slashed just because local people didn't think they were getting to be enough slice of the action. You know, so they started, you know, what can we do to hire more people? But then also they started sponsoring the local footy league, football league. That association football league because that was a hugely popular sport and so suddenly they were seen as being more part of that community so i think even if one looks at it through a hard commercial lens it's imperative that companies understand the places they're in and i think probably the best example that i know of of a company that's realized that and learned from it. i mean there are plenty of others but the one that always sticks in my mind because i studied it and, and studied it when i was in azerbaijan and and, and um, work with them on it is BP you know BP I, and I forget the dates on this I'm sure people can go and look them up a number of years ago probably decades now it was discovered that they'd been training up their security staff to defend you know to protect their their facility in Colombia which is you know out in the boondocks and then it came to light that the people they trained up were spending their weekends going and basically fighting on behalf of FARC and shooting local villagers so obviously BP got massively criticized for that but the guy that got them out of the mire of that, he'd been the external affairs director, then ended up going and running BP's operations in Azerbaijan at the time at which they were building the Baku Jehan pipeline, which was a hugely important piece of infrastructure, but also hugely sensitive in terms of it, you know, going through some of the most disputed lands in the world. And they managed to do it with no challenges. You know, and that's a company that therefore got a, a piece of really important infrastructure built because it bothered to go and understand local tribal differences, it bothered to go and talk to local people. It bothered to actually understand what the various dynamics were and all the way along the pipeline. It wasn't the same all the way through. So that, I think, is an example of where whether or not people like you or I might believe that companies do have a, a moral responsibility in this regard. I would argue strongly that you're failing as a business in your fiduciary duty to your shareholders if you're not properly understanding the countries you're in, because you're setting yourself up for, at some point, you'll fall over your shoelaces and something will go badly wrong. Well, and an argument that we like to make on the podcast is that it is good business to do this, that having a position, having values that you actually put into practice that go beyond the desire to make profit will help your business be sustainable over the long term. And I think 
you know, more and more businesses are seeing this, but it has to be something that's incorporated into the business model as much as possible. And it's not something that is, you know, we, we, we sponsor the, the footy team when we have extra money, but when things are going bad, forget it, you know, they're out on the street. It has to really be a commitment that ideally is, is as much a part of the business operations as possible so that it contributes to the overall success of that business and therefore is not, you know, no longer a question is how we might like to approach it. <laughs> No, and I think, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, it is ex- it is exactly the case that unless it's these things are built into the weft and warp of day to day management practice, it'll bounce off the surface. It'll be the well, I'll get to that on Friday afternoon. Something comes up on Friday afternoon, even if it's something like you know, the, the child mind has not turned up. I've got to go and pick up my child from school. It bounces off the surface. I mean, I'm old enough to have worked in this space since it was called corporate citizenship, and I do remember in my early days, someone we were we probably and I had gone to a a client company, and and someone did say, oh yes, uh, corporate citizenship, yes, that, that's the do good department on the fifth floor. So it was seen as being we've got the business, and then there's a do good department down the line. But yeah, unless these things are absolutely built into the weft and warp, warp of the business, there's always a risk that they, you know, when there's budget cuts, when there's time pressure, they'll get forgotten about. But again, I think the more that one can frame these discussions around commercial reality, I think it then makes it easier to build that in. And an example I'd give of that is I did a piece of work three years ago looking at the challenges of smallholder agricultural supply chains and how to drive more support to smallholder farmers. And talking to buyers from the big food companies, they would argue we can't work more closely with individual communities because we've got, you know, whatever, 15 factories around the world making candy bars. We've got 20 factories making fizzy drinks. We need completely seamless supply, and that's why we buy through commodity markets. Particularly post Ebola, particularly with what's going on now in the Red Sea, being able to say, well, actually, does that necessarily stand? If you as a business actually have close relationships with farming communities in certain spaces where they have a loyalty to you because you're looking after them, Actually, isn't that actually a more secure long-term supply chain? Because it means that others may not be able to access the supply that they want, but because you've got those communities that are part of your bigger network, maybe that's a better approach. So it's the more that the sorts of things that we would like to happen get can be couched in terms of commercial practicality, it makes it easier to build it in. And I think it's interesting that because corporations, when they're acting at home or abroad, have, as you say, lots of levers that they can work with, whether it's employment, whether it's investment, whether it's infrastructure, that's part of their supply chain or they're doing business that are quite useful to the environment in general. And so it gives a seat at the table to deal with some of these issues around what that might be happening in that area. So I'm just thinking about like the shipping companies who are dealing with the issues in the Red Sea right now. I mean, I'm sure they would like to see peace. (laughs) I'm sure they would like to see this conflict resolved. And I would imagine there's somebody at headquarters at Maersk saying, you know, can I go talk to someone I'd like to? Can I talk to Netanyahu? Can I talk to the Houthis? Can I, you know, can we engage? And I'm wondering if you're seeing a new dynamic develop between the private sector, the public sector, and the nonprofit sector, who, with a bit of shuffling of roles. Again, you've, there's two bits to that question there. The first is the 
as it were, in practical terms, what can companies do? I think the, what one might, I suppose, term corporate diplomacy, you know, so, you know, whoever heads may ask up going and trying to talk to Netanyahu, I think many companies would still be extremely wary of that because that would be seen as being an illegitimate attempt to interfere in political processes. You know, hist- ironically, historically, there have been examples of where that's worked. I mean, the most obvious example being the, the shift from Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, um, whenever that was back in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. But it's it's when companies are thinking laterally within their sphere of influence. And, you know, a couple of examples. When I was working in Rwanda, um, Heineken was trying to improve its distribution network, but realised that a lot of the guys that ran small stores, you know, didn't have the, couldn't, didn't have the access to finance to make those stores work properly. And they certainly didn't have enough money to be able to buy a vehicle to, to distribute stuff. So Heineken used its own credit position to allow those farmers, those farmers and shopholders, shopkeepers, to be able to access finance that they otherwise wouldn't have done. So that was an example of where a company was leveraging its ability to do something it recognised had a had a wider piece, had a wider social impact. You know, another one I think would be when Talisman was negotiating its its oil contract in Iraq. It made a point of ensuring that as part of that, some of that revenue would flow to the communities where the oil was being taken from so they were beginning to show that there you know there's a, a benefit to that local community and again you can make the argument to say well that makes good business sense because of course then local people are seeing the benefits of what's going on literally under their feet so there are examples of of where that can work but i think there's when it becomes more overtly political then i think companies are still very wary but i think i mean this is where that sort of much overused term public private partnerships comes in i mean i think it's a question of what is it that companies, NGOs, governments, what is it that they're best able to do? And how do you make sure that that gets done in a joined up way? I mean, I did a piece of work a number of years ago, which was initiated by Shell, Rio Tinto and IFC. And but specifically, the specific issue we were looking at was the Sumandu iron ore investment in Guinea. And the, the question was, look, this is going to be you know, several billion over of investment over a number of years. How can we make sure that this investment provides jobs for local people, provides contracts for local businesses? And so we basically mapped out, well, what, who needs to do what and in, in what fashion? You know, and from the corporate perspective, you know, the big PLC, for example, one of the things they had to do was to say, well, instead of having three or four big contracts with international businesses, we're going to have 40, 50, 100 contracts with smaller local businesses. So we need to recalibrate our procurement people. The government needed to ensure that the legal basis was in place for these relationships to happen. You know, NGOs needed to work with local training institutions to help skill them up. So we could map out a sort of series of actions that needed to happen and who was best placed to do each. And then how do you then, as it were, everyone pulls their levers in a, in a, in a joined up fashion. And I think that's what that's what I think needs to happen. It's not about, you know, corporates trying to become politicians that any more than it's desirable that, I know, lions become zebra. It's like an ecosystem, actually. Everyone has their role to play. And it's how there can be a frank discussion about, right, if you, Mr. Corporate, do this, you know, we, government, will do that. Right, we'll work, work with the NGOs to do this, this and this. And, and, and to recognise that in affecting change in these environments, be that emerging economies, fragile states, whatever, no one actor can do it all. They, there needs to be a link between lots of different actors and doing that in a joined up thought through sense, but also with an analytical framework that has 
properly identified what the problem is that's the way of moving forward not an easy task which which I I can see how you you've built your career around (laughs) I don't want to take too much of your time I've I've got two sort of two more questions one is just to, to touch on that so to kind of wrap that part up if we wanted to give a few best practices for companies that are and, and I, I'll expand this a little bit because I, I'm curious to, to hear what you would say, because you mentioned the, the Russia conflict and how some corporations were divesting or making statements. And now also you have Ben and Jerry's have just called for a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire in, in Gaza. So I, I'm curious for companies that are perhaps they're just in a war zone, not you know because they were there and war has, has happened and they're trying to operate there. What can they do? What should they do? And for companies who are, let's say, affected by war, so maybe they have a supplier in Gaza or they have a supplier in Ukraine or something, and they feel that they want to take a position or they feel that there's something that they need to say to support their, you know, their, their counterparts or their, the people that they work with, what do you think about that? Well, I think I'd sort of refer back to what I said before, really, which is, in almost any circumstance, a knee-jerk reaction is the wrong thing to do. I mean, obviously, unless you've got a tiger running towards you, in which case, you know, getting out of the way is probably a good scheme. But in most situations like this, precipitant action is problematic because you're responding to the immediate rather than what they need to be doing in those circumstances is taking a step back and saying, well, OK, let's try and balance up what all of the different aspects of this are and what are we going to do as a basis for that? You know, because you could say if you've got, if you're, I don't know, companies selling stuff into I mean, Europe or North America and you've got a supplier who is, you know, perhaps it's oranges that are coming out of Gaza or Israel, that there might be a temptation to say, well, we need the oranges, so we need to find another provider. You know, duh, ah, hang on. Well, that actually, if you would withdraw your contract, then that is going to make an already pretty ghastly life for that grower even worse. Okay, so how might we be able to benefit from that? Well, actually, say, look, we want to carry on buying from our producer in in Israel. So therefore, say to your customers, the orange supply may be a bit sporadic over the next few weeks, but then make a positive of it. Be able to say, look, this is something that we're that we can actually demonstrate that these are real things that you don't want to take. You don't want to take those contracts away because that would that would have a have a disastrous effect. Um, and I think sometimes it also means being a bit brave, certainly with the Russia divestment thing two year, nearly two years ago. I think it almost got so ingrained that oh, if a company is serious, it must be divesting. And you did actually have one or two companies did try and say, well, what about our supply chain? But they were they were sort of shouted out. And I think it, there is that, you know, go go into the depth as far as you can of the issue and under, try and understand what is going to be the the, the best thing you can do of course, the commercial rationale has to play a part in that. But are there ways in which you can balance that about also doing what you can for whatever's going on in that conflict environment? You know, and you say with things like infrastructure, what can a company that's operating there that maybe has a gen set, you know, what might it be able to do to say, well, actually, can we can we rig up the gen set to, you know, a local hospital? I mean, chances are in some of these places that there's probably already a piece of dodgy wiring that someone's put in that means you're perhaps having some of your power nicked anyway. Again, I think it it loops back to the theme through this whole discussion, which is that companies operating, well, actually any society, but it's more noted, more noteworthy in in fragile and emerging economies, 
big companies operating, they can't not have an impact. The point always is to understand what is that impact and how can we make that as positive as possible? One hopes because we think it's an important thing to do, but actually as positive as possible because actually that's going to be the best thing for our business in the longer run. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. <laughs> so there was one other thing I wanted to ask you right. about, which is, I think, a new venture of yours, which is Sustainable Wine Roundtable. So I'm sure that some of my listeners are interested in wine and as well as sustainability. So we'd love to hear more about that. <laughs> in a sense, being involved with that was slightly random in that obviously most of my career has been in fragile states. With a few exceptions, most wine doesn't come from fragile states. I mean, there are obvious exceptions like... Um, Lebanon, for example, uh, the Beccar Valley wines are fantastic, but the Beccar Valley is a bit of a dodgy place to be. No, a sustainable wine roundtable. It, it sort of does what it says on the tin. It tries to promote sustainability in the wine industry. But I think what we've tried to focus on is getting stuff done. I mean, anything to do with sustainability, there's an awful lot of talking shops. There's an awful lot of hot air of press releases and seminars and summits and all that kind of palaver. Was what we're trying to do is to say, right, how can we come up with practical, evidence-based responses to get things done? Also, the other thing in wine, which makes it a bit more complicated, is that it's incredibly fragmented. And if you're looking at the chocolate market, if you've got Mondelez, Mars, Nestle in the womb, you've probably got 80% of the world's chocolate market. Whereas with wine, the biggest wine producer only produces 3% of the world's wine. So it's it's very fragmented, which means that there's often a sense of isolation. We're trying to do a good job here, but we're not sure. But also that there's quite a lot of expertise already out there that's not being put together. So the two things we're working on most at the moment, one is around wine packaging, but specifically wine bottle weight. We did some work last year to look at how can you lightweight wine bottles and, and what should be aimed at. And um, at the end of last year, we launched the Bottle Weight Accord, under which 11 retailers have committed to reducing their average bottle weight below 420 grams by the end of 2026 from a current average of about 550. So that's a 25% reduction in bottle weight. So that ends up being a 12.5% reduction in the total carbon footprint of the wine sold. And that those 11 retailers sell between them about 350 million bottles of wine, which as someone said is quite a good party. But we've also now got some producer groups coming on board as well. So again, it's a way of using proper analysis so the logic is the same as what we've been talking about so far but proper analysis proper evidence to then say right this is what needs to happen and then of course well, why wouldn't people come along you know because again this is a, another case where in commerce doing the right thing actually makes commercial sense you know you've got things like extended producer responsibility which means that companies need to manage to, to minimize their packaging in order to you know save fines effectively i um, you know a small uk retailer we've got involved is going to buy going along with our accord is going to save half a million pounds a year so you know that's no small amount of money then you know this is another case where doing the right thing and doing the commercially sensible thing are the are one and the same the other thing we're doing or working on is benchmarking of the various sustainability standards in wine slightly depending on how you count there's about anything up to 70 standards now, on the one hand, that makes sense because most of them have emerged from specific geographies. But at the same time, at the other end, if you're a buyer that's trying to tell your buyers, right, this is the specification, how the hell do you know what the difference is between a label that says wines of Alentejo or Venus de Chile or Sustainable Wines Australia, Sustainable Wines GB? No one's got a clue. So we're doing a process to, to benchmark them, to, to say which are 
incredible in terms of demonstrating a journey to sustainability. So yeah, again, it's about proper analysis, data-driven, analysis-driven, but at the end of the day, getting stuff done. You know, as my strapline and my in my LinkedIn says, you're getting things done in difficult places. Right. Um, I wouldn't quite describe Bordeaux as, as quite such a difficult <laughs> place as, as as Baghdad, but uh, right. but you know, I, I'll take the I'll take the being in Bordeaux. <laughs> and I and are consumers responding to it as well? Are are they communicating these, or is it mostly kind of an internal thing at the moment? It's an interesting one because you see it across all, as it were, sustainability in retail. That in principle, consumers like the idea that products they buy are more sustainable. The difficulty is they don't always know what that looks like. You know, look at any analysis that asks consumers to say, what does I know a fair trade label or what does it actually mean? They'll say something general about it's probably something to do with sustainability, but they won't necessarily know much more than that. So this is why if we can get, for example, on the standards benchmarking piece, right, the bottle weight, right, then actually it consumers don't necessarily need to understand the detail any more than when I turn my car on, I need to understand the the pros and cons of a, of a, of a dual rail fuel injection system. You know, I kind of know it's there, but I don't need to understand it. So if we can be in a situation where retailers are able to say to their consumers, right, these wines over here, they're in lighter weight bottles. They are certified to a standard, which is a sustainability standard, which is regarded as credible. Fill your boots. You can go and buy those and be completely comfortable that what you're doing is taking a, a sustainable decision because it's people like you and I like getting involved in the in the weeds the detail on these things but most people kind of have a life and have other things they need to do and particularly when it comes to buying wine they're probably you know running after the office to to buy a bottle of wine to go and take someone's dinner party and they don't necessarily have the time to put all that thinking in Right. Well, that, that sounds like a really interesting project. We'll put some links in the show notes so people can, can have a look about that. All right. So, Peter, we've got two wrap up questions for you, if you'll indulge us. The first one is an opportunity to give a shout out to a company or a brand that you feel is doing exceptional work in the activism or sustainability space. I thought a lot, a lot about this and it might sound a bit trite, but I'm going to go with Nestle. I mean, they're not actually they're not getting it all right. I have to say, I'm glad it's not BP. I'm working with Nestle on, on what they're doing in the cocoa market. But I've been talking for various reasons with some of the guys over the last year. And some of the detail that they're really getting into, particularly in the sort of human and labour rights space, really is phenomenal. We had speaking at one of the wine workshops recently, we're looking at human rights in the wine supply chain. You know, and Nestle within the cocoa, there's been a lot of challenges with child labor in the cocoa business, you know, usually associated with poor families not being able to afford to buy and labor, so using their children. But Nestle have really gone into the detail of how do we actually, rather than just say, oh, this is bad, to say, well, actually, where does it come from? What's actually the driver behind it? And what can we do to address that driver? And I think that getting into that level of granularity really is deeply impressive, especially for a big company where it sometimes might be easy just to go along with whatever the party line is. So I think, although it's a slightly, potentially a slightly, you know, too imaginative an answer, I, I've just been really impressed by some of the stuff that they're doing. I think in one way, it, it's very perhaps easier for smaller companies to have sustainability or, or activism values. But when a huge company can act in this way, they have so much more ability to impact the space through their supply chain, through the ripple effects. So I also think it's, it's, it's that sort of replicability piece. If Nestle is able to do that, despite all the, you know, the, the other agendas they've got going on, then 
frankly, anyone can. Because yes, I mean, if you look at, I mean, look at, look at, look at chocolate as an example. You know, brands like Tony's Chocolate Only. You know, they've made a really big play about sustainability being part of their brand set, which is which is brilliant. But as you say, for smaller companies, it's, it's easy to do that because you can actually make it umbilical to your brand. Whereas with a you know a big company like Nestle, that's a harder thing to do. But they are even looking at particular. They're, they're, they're in the process of developing a Kit Kat, which is one of their brands, which will be produced only from sustainably produced ingredients not just the not just the, the chocolate so it's one of the not that i'm old and cynical but very rarely am i positively struck and thinking wow that's really quite impressive and and that work that nestle was talking about at this workshop a few months ago really was incredibly impressive yeah and if we can reduce the guilt of eating chocolate by by some degree <laughs> it's always a good thing <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so quite. last one is there something that's made you laugh recently uh, well, fun enough. I know we've uh, we've had a couple of the, the audience won't hear this because you've edited it out, oh. but being disturbed by your dog barking. The thing that's yes. made me laugh most <laughs> over the last few weeks is we've had puppies. Or credit oh. where credit due was due. One of our dogs has had puppies, so we've got five little creatures who are they're basically cockapoos, and they are incredibly sweet and incredibly amusing to watch. And they're just trying seeing them learning to fight with each other or play with each other or bounce around. It's it's. If one's had a bad day, going and, and spending 20 minutes with the puppies is enough to make anyone laugh. Yes. Well, puppies are kind of the antidote to everything, aren't they? <laughs> I think so, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Peter, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I appreciate so much your perspective and sharing all of your decades of knowledge and, and work in this field. And, and while I would hope that you would perhaps the world would be getting better and there would be less things for you to go out there and fix. I think you're going to be busy for a while. <laughs> well, it, I, yes, it suits my boat that that is the case, but uh, yes, there's a lot to be done. But thanks very much. It's been great to chat. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of The Corporate Activist. Please stay tuned for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. We've got some great conversations coming up and I hope you'll join us. If you have any questions or need some advice about corporate activism, social impact, and political engagement, please send them our way and we'll respond in future episodes. You can find us on X and Instagram at Corp Activist. The Corporate Activist is brought to you by Stance Advocacy Services and is produced by the good people at the Podcast Boutique. I'm your host, Siri Kalsa. Ciao for now.